Hello, I'm Father Gregory, and I'm a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, here to welcome you back to Off-Campus Conversations. Uh, I would say a new installment on the Thomistic Institute podcast, except I think it's been about a year, so at which point we're just going to say an installment on the Thomistic Institute podcast, in which we follow up with Thomistic Institute speakers who have given lectures on campus or in the setting of a retreat or a conference. So that way, with a kind of con contemplative disposition, we can follow up some of the insights and, uh, yes, yeah, see where they lead us. So for this episode of Off-Campus Conversations, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Michael Root. Thanks so much for joining. My pleasure. Um, so many folks will know you from other lectures that you've given on the Thomistic Institute podcast. I think the first contribution I heard you made was at a conference that we had at New York University on The Last Things. Um, but besides that, publications, your teaching work at at Catholic University, your work on the Joint Declaration, other things besides, but rather than give the introduction for you, would you just say a word of who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Right. I'm uh, Michael Root. I'm an emeritus professor. That means I've retired recently uh, from the Catholic University of America. Um, I'm originally from Norfolk, Virginia. Um, I've spent my life teaching theology, have been sent seminaries to a large degree. I did, as mentioned, a good deal of ecumenical work. Uh, working on the Lutheran Catholic Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. And one of my interests has been eschatology on last things. Um, it's very central in the New Testament um, and sometimes doesn't get much attention in contemporary uh, faith and preaching. So I find it particularly interesting. Okay, so we're, we're going to follow up on a lecture that you gave at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, specifically about hope in heaven. And so you did uh, a kind of introduction to the virtue of hope at the outset and turned your gaze towards heaven and, you know, what we can anticipate in heaven, mindful of the fact that eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it so much as dawned on the heart of man. Yet we can say certain true things which are uh, revealed to us in the sacred scriptures and the church's tradition. So I thought that we could follow up specifically with what you mentioned about the social and kind of political dimensions of heaven. You, you kind of described how in the medieval tradition, sometimes it seems within the setting of the pertinent treatise that heaven is just us before God, kind of wrapped in a gaze that doesn't have, you know, communal dimensionality to it. So you, you described it as all of us around a campfire just staring at the flames. Um, but yeah, you gestured towards richer biblical and traditional themes, which bring out some of these social and political dimensions, I suppose. So can you maybe lead us into the conversation and highlight some of those? Sure. There's been a debate, in fact, among Thomists to a certain degree over the last 20 years. Uh, a well-known Thomist theologian, Jeremy Grise, has said the goal of the telos of the human life shouldn't be described simply as God, which is the traditional way of putting it, but the kingdom of God to bring in more of the kind of social dimension. That was, and others responded back, trying to defend the traditional notion. Um, and there is a tendency, I think, sometimes in scholastic theology of various sorts, Thomas included, that sometimes it's the individual beatific vision and you don't quite see the communal aspect. I mean, if you look in the New Testament, the dominant image of what we'll do in heaven is liturgy. Uh, we'll be praising God and in a communal kind of way. I mean, if you read the book of Revelation, it's a strange book in many ways. But one thing that's central is they're always sort of in group activities praising God. I mean, falling on their faces, doing incense. I mean, this is sort of liturgy. Now, liturgy, the mass, prayer, or I mean, all the different kinds, is God-centered, but it's also humanly structured with a certain degree of human interaction. Um, or the other image one gets often in the New Testament 
is a banquet. Many will come from east and west and sit with Abraham and Isaac. Uh, and a banquet is certainly a social kind of dimension. But how do we understand then the God-centeredness of the kingdom of heaven? Because in the end, it's all about God. I mean, that's the, that's the reward. Um, that's the point um, with the social dimension. I think one way of getting at it, and this is sort of through St. Augustine, is ask who, who has the beatific vision in a certain sense? Is it just a collection of individuals? If we all participate in the beatific vision through Christ, Christ is the source of all grace, then don't we participate in the beatific vision in heaven as members of the body of Christ? So that there is a kind of communal dimension. It's a communal dimension of our unity in Christ, in which there is a kind of structure. There'll be a queen of heaven, uh, the Blessed Mother. Um, there will be those who I will guess are much holier than I am. I mean, I, I, will, I will place a significant bet that Mother Teresa will shine more brightly in the kingdom than I will. But I'll enjoy that. That's great. I mean, there'll be no envy. I mean, I'll admire her perfect holiness, and she'll delight in, in her, her holiness, shining on earth, presuming Mother Teresa is whom she appears to be, or St. Dominic, let's say, or I'll admire the mind of Thomas Aquinas, maybe even Dun Scotus, um, in their brilliance. So there'll be a kind of interaction, but where I, where I think we need to think a bit is about the way there is still a Christian community. There's a city of God. There's the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven that will inhabit. A city is a kind of structured body, but it's a body structured by its orientation to what is in the end, the absolute center of all things, which is God. When we're taken into the life of the Trinity, both in knowledge and in love, in intellect and will, through Christ, so that I mean, I certainly have not thought it through anywhere near as much as I'd like to, but to think about not play off one against the other, that I think was the, the drawback in this debate of 15 years ago or so, but to think about the way in which we will be centered on God as the body of Christ, as a community with eternal differentiation, a community which is in Christ and is there participating in God because it's in Christ. Okay, so attendant to those comments which you made, which I find both helpful and challenging, I have three follow-ups. If we get to all three, God be praised. Chances are we don't. Uh, so the first concerns mediation. The second concerns communion. The third concerns Christ. So mediation, right, it's a, a kind of point where St. Thomas expresses a certain worry or anxiety. He doesn't want to say that God is that through which we see God. You know, he wants to avoid this notion of some intelligible species which would mediate the beatific vision. He wants it such that, to speak somewhat imprecisely, it's just God, you know, kind of weds himself to our mind. Um, and so you have a lot of descriptions of how things which smack of mediation, like faith and hope, uh, even the sacramental dispensation will pass away in heaven. So then what would be some of the ways that we could describe this Christian community which safeguards against some of that mediation worry or anxiety, but maybe profits from other kind of themes, whether, you know, biblical or traditional, uh, that help us to appreciate what's going on there. I don't know if you have first thoughts on that. I think it would be, I mean, there's a kind of, let's clear say in the book of Revelation, 
again, that's I mean, re interpreting Revelation is complicated, but nevertheless, is there's a kind of an immediacy of our presence with God in the last day. God dwells with humanity. There is no lamp in the in the new city because the the light is the Lamb of God. There is no temple because God is the temple. So you have this kind of immediacy. In this life, there is there is the mediation of the word of God we hear, the sacraments we receive. But it can't be that the end of and that mediation ends. We'll now will be now we see in a glass darkly, then we will see face to face. But that can't mean the end of our dependency on Christ. It can't be that Christ is a kind of ladder we climb up, and then when we get to heaven, we kick the ladder away. I mean, there has to be a kind of ongoing being in Christ that is still not done away with, but perfectly fulfilled in the kingdom. So that when Aquinas does these complicated moves, all of which I'm not sure I understand, on um, the, the way in which the essence of God becomes the intelligible species by which we have the vision, that doesn't mean that that immediacy doesn't rule out that still I do this because I am now perfectly included in Christ. Or the love of God, which is now shed abroad in our hearts absolutely perfectly, is because the Holy Spirit uniting us with, with Christ is now perfectly formed us so that we're taken into the love of the Holy Spirit, which is the communion of the Father and the Son. So that so that I think we can put together a different kind of mediation. I mean, it is Catholic dogma in the papal constitution of 1336 that there will be no mediation in terms of an object we see in the beginning of the picture. We don't see another object and then see something in that object. But that isn't to say Christ doesn't mediate not as an object, but as the one in whom we are in. But now in perfectly without without mediation because we have been taken into Christ in a kind of now not absolute way that we dissolve. This is a kind of oh, we dissolve into, into God, but that we are formed to Christ perfectly. That's what I think, that's what I want to think through is how do we understand what sometimes can seem that our dependence on Christ ends in heaven. It's rather our dependence on Christ is perfected. Okay, so I want to follow up on that, that image with which you conclude. Um, so apropos of this theme of communion, I'm thinking of a scene in the Purgatorio where Dante has ascended from the rank of the proud to the rank of the envious. And if memory serves, I think they have their eyes sewn shut and their tears come through at the corners. And uh, he's inquiring with one of the envious souls. And they say something to the effect of, bad paraphrase, here we, we learn to no longer say mine and thine, but genuinely ours. Um, so there's a sense of, you know, appertaining to the kingdom of heaven, which addresses some of the solipsism or the competition of our heavenly, or excuse me, of our terrestrial experience. And yet in our celestial experience, uh, I, don't, I don't think that we want to say that we're assimilated 
uh, in the negative sense, like one is to a totalitarian state or to a Klingon Borg, um, that there is some individuality that remains or there's some personality that remains, something of your own history that remains. So as you, you know, describe us being constituted as one in the worshiping Christ in heaven, like where, like where do we, yeah, where do we lay hold of that image without on the one hand it becoming a kind of strange Hobbesian Leviathan, or on the other hand, it like, yeah, just kind of diluting some of the personalistic, the rich personalistic themes, which are, you know, drawn out in heaven. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you have thoughts to address that. Yeah, I think. One of the complicated things in thinking about heaven is thinking about the way that we'll be the same, but transformed. I mean, the really the classical one that gets debated endlessly, in what sense will we have the same, the body we have now, that's the language of the Fourth Lateran Council, but radically transformed. But I think we need to apply that to our ourselves, who we are, our character, our personality. You'll remain you, I'll remain me. Mother Teresa will remain Mother Teresa. St. Dominic will remain St. Dominic. I mean, so that everyone receives, the beatific vision is indivisible. I mean, either you sort of have it or you don't. And what you see is perfectly simple. But it may very well be that someone like St. Francis, Charles de Foucault, what they will eternally delight in will be, a, a, so to speak, an aspect of God as, as, as in, in God's own way, humble, simple, perfectly loving, perhaps a certain kind of intellectual, because that's who they are, will delight in the way in which all the diverse aspects of the good we think of are perfectly one in God. And that will just amaze them for all eternity. Not that they don't appreciate what Charles de Foucault or St. Therese of Lisieux appreciates, but what would they particularly will treasure for all eternity is who they've been formed in this life to appreciate. So that Thomas, Dominic, Francis, St. Teresa, Charles de Foucault will all have the same, participate in the same reality in their own way. So that, the, and I'll appreciate, perhaps Charles de Foucault, eternally appreciating uh, a side of God that I don't appreciate in quite the same way that Charles de Foucault has, because I've been informed to that in my life, and, and that will be who I will be. Um, so that each of us will still be us. And so to speak, the the that which is known as in the knower and the, and the mode of the knower, that will be true in a certain way, even in the beatific vision, in a certain sense, that I will appreciate, delight in, enjoy, to use the traditional language, enjoy God as me, you as you, well, from out of your history, from out of your particularity, um, so that there isn't a dissolve into one, into one Borg, um, but into perfect communion, perfect harmony. Um, the way you appreciate God may not be the way I will, but I'll delight in your appreciation of God. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, it's mind bending, uh, but in a good, you know, the way in which our mind ought to be bent. Uh, because it's fascinating, like, I, th I think in part, one of the difficulties is we have, um, yeah, we find it hard to envision genuinely common goods without breaking them down in our mind to become particular goods. Like we think about everything 
that is to be had as if it were a you know pizza pie. And when I take one slice, it only really leaves seven slices for the rest of humanity. Um, but yeah, to speak of God in those terms is crass, materialistic, reductionistic. It just doesn't apply to the experience of heaven. And yet, yeah, I mean, like the, the covenantal language of our embrace of God, I mean, even one of the questions which is posed to Christ, to which he responds in heaven, you will neither be married nor given a marriage. It's about like possession, as it were, like nuptial possession. It's like, whose will she be? And I think there's something of that in all of our questioning too, like whose will he, whose will God be? Um, and I think we all want to say mine. And I think there's a kind of faint fear by virtue of our training as human beings in the particular good, contrary to the common good, <laughs> that that he won't wholly be mine if he is everyone else's. So yeah, you, you've, you've adverted to um, a couple of images like banqueting. Uh, like worshiping, which address some of these fears. But yeah, I don't know. Do you have other recommendations or other resources that we can draw upon to help us kind of mature in our understanding of God as a genuinely common good in whom we are all be satisfied beyond compare with each other in a kind of communion? Um, I mean, there you sometimes in classes, everybody's glass will be full. But we'll, we'll have a variety of different kinds of glasses, both in terms of size. But I mean, I, it's not so much you know, there are going to be, there's going to be levels in heaven, which is the way it gets put sometimes, some shining brighter than others. But rather, just differentiation. That's why it's sort of the difference between a saint who, whose humility, say, is particularly outstanding, a saint whose intellectual insight is particularly outstanding. They'll have the common good in a particular way. I mean, I must say, one of the things, I mean, I've been married 48 years, uh, very happily, uh, that they will neither marry nor be given in marriage bothered me sometimes. I mean, my wife has been enormously important for my life. Um, perhaps one way of thinking about it is that I will come to my relation with everyone else in heaven, including my wife, out of my history, out of my formation, which to a large degree has to do with my wife. I mean, I may still relate to my wife eternally in a slightly different way than somebody hasn't been married to her for 48 years. Should our Lord return tomorrow, and that's all there is, 48. Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I think one needs to think of the different ways. I mean, a common good isn't totalitarian, as you put it. We will participate in the common good as the unique individual we are. Um, and in that way, the common good, particularly the common good of God, shows its absolute fecundity, that it can be participated, and there'll be an infinite number of persons and angels in heaven, but presumably there are going to be a lot. Um, and so they can be participated in, in in an enormous number of different ways, which aren't competitive. Um, the typical sin of professors is envy. I mean, it's not greed. I mean, you don't become a theology professor to make a lot of money. <laughs> I'm not that stupid. But envy, I mean, professors, uh, you know, you, you're envious of others. I mean, sort of recognition is what you, is important to you. Guess um, what I fight with. I mean, envy is a part of professorial life often. But there'll be no envy. It'll be a world without, with a perfect delight in the sheer variety of the ways the one good the good itself, the good, the true, and the beautiful with capital letters all through, the enormous number of ways it can be diversified in, finite, in the participation of finite creatures, both humans and angels, and something we haven't talked about, um, even in its own way, 
presumably, in some way, the physical world. Yeah, that, that, was a, that was a point about your talk, I mean, structurally or kind of methodologically that I appreciated. You said, I'm not uh, going to address the kind of state between death and a particular judgment and then general judgment and the resurrection of the body insofar as the biblical and traditional testimony tends to crowd around that latter phenomenon. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's a strength of your presentation really to, to focus on those aspects which are most corporeal, like most bodily insofar as they offer us a rich you know, like image driven or kind of metaphorical handhold for further, um, you know, for further argumentation or for further exploration. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm, it's fascinating. Like um, th this image that you were kind of describing of yourself rejoicing in God in regarding, you know, Charles de Foucault rejoice in God. You get this impression that God is this kind of inexhaustible source of radiance, you know, of abundance, of life, of beatitude, and that as he passes into the souls of each touched by that grace, uh, you know, that grace is refracted into a particular register or transposed in a certain sense. And that too becomes an object, a secondary object, but nonetheless an object of our marveling in God, because it seems to spin out a vision of heaven wherein like providence becomes vi like a visible uh, in a certain sense, but, but like more so than it has been here at yeah, present right. kind of, uh, you know, like through a glass darkly. So, so maybe, I don't know, can you, can you reflect a little bit about the, the kind of ecosystematic, glorious, worshipful, festal harmony of heaven in light of our, our present experience of divine providence, are there ways that we kind of abandon ourselves to or consent to providence now at present, which kind of sensitize us to or kind of direct our gaze more perfectly to heaven? I think certainly in terms of providence is a particular place where we see in the class darkly. Uh, sometimes we see providence. We see things that have happened in our lives. We see things that have happened other lives historically, which have have turned out for the good. Um, Joseph says in chapter 50 of Genesis, when the brothers are worried that Isaac has died, Joseph is now going to get his revenge on them. And Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we see that sometimes in our lives and the lives of others. But it's hard often to see, particularly in larger history. And there's plenty of cases or perhaps we want to ask God, you know, why in the world did you let that happen? <laughs> um, and certainly one of the promises of heaven is that we will see. Um, we will see that providence always was ruling. Now, how we'll see, you know, what that will come to, how we will see all that, I don't know. I mean, there I um, I mean, I'm puzzled too by the way the way the world and history work. Um, but certainly, that will be an important aspect of heaven as of heaven as revelation of understanding history, both universal and our own. And the, and the way in which it has been led by God to back to himself. Um, sometimes we have very circuitous passages, and we'll see why it took those circuitous passages. Um, 
I tend to think that particularly of, of judgment as a kind of a, a moment of intense revelation that we will we will understand as we will know as we are known, um, and that particularly judgment is a motion where all becomes clear. Um, yeah, that would be the way I would tend. I tend to identify that with my own mind with judgment because of the, the notion of all becoming clear. But that certainly will be one of the great joys of the kingdom. Yeah, I remember reading Gary Lagrange's Life Everlasting, and him talking about you know primary and secondary joys of heaven. And as you, and you were mentioning what a speculative theologian might come to rejoice in in heaven. It's it's clear that he has that in mind as he makes this description. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he's talking about like the resolution of the problem of evil as it were, or the reconciliation of seemingly disparate attributes of God, like justice and mercy. Um, but when you start spinning it out, you know, kind of excogitating it, you realize how many different ways there are to look at God. Um, and I think some people might be overwhelmed by that, but I hope that people are encouraged by that. Because uh, on the one hand, it, it makes you hungry for the mercy of God, um, because that's the only way by which to attain thereunto, you know, it's to be nourished by that mercy. And on the other hand, too, it, it makes you, it kind of like valorizes your experience. Like you're meant to see something of God, you know. You're not meant to just uh, be churned through the robotic process of sanctification. It's like, there's something to be told in your particular history. And I think in listening to the lecture that you gave, you were highlighting this when it comes to like disability and martyrdom and our particular history. You know, you made reference there to your wife. I don't know if you, uh, can you say, can you say a further, a further word on the, the value of our experience, the value of our history as a kind of sacred history? Yeah, I think it's in particular, um, to go back to the point of a, of a sort of the common good and particularity. I mean, there isn't, one can make some general statements about what is the end of human existence? Um, to know God and enjoy him forever. Um, but that general end takes a particular shape in the sort of biographical arc of one's life. Um, it takes a certain set of interests, it's located in a certain place. Um, the kind of way in which I, the interests in which you or I have been shaped as people living in the early 21st century is rather different from say, Aquinas is being shaped in the early 13th century, or you know, Augustine in the fourth. I mean, the, the culture helps to shape who you are. And that that is not just a set of accidents to be to be to be sloughed off. Uh, I mean, I am who I am in, in terms of being shaped in a certain way. And that that will then I will be a 2020, 20th and 21st century person, man, American, when I receive the beatific vision. And so, and those I live with. So that is, I will, I will delight in the sheer difference of being in perfect communion with a Dominican of the 13th or 14th century. I'm sure 13th and 14th century people with whom I will be in perfect communion are going to be pretty much different from you and me. Um, and I will delight in the, in the all the things I share with others of the 21st century. Um, or even, you know, baby boomers like myself who, who experienced the greatest pop music of all time in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so that the sheer what's important is not to see it as a kind of precisely as a kind of cookie cutter. It's a famous line in Huckleberry Finn at the beginning, where you know, whenever you talk about heaven, it always seems so boring. <laughs> because I think I mean, one doesn't one doesn't remain open to the way in which the sort of tension between individualism and community will cease. So that community doesn't override my individuality, my particular history, the shape of my life, but is the perfect fulfillment and unity with others. Um, and that that is the way in which both I and as an individual and the body of Christ as a whole from across all of time will together be perfectly, um, will be perfected in unity with one another. And in unity with the universe, although there one gets really speculative. <laughs> yeah, I think about that apropos of St. Thomas, you know, when he describes the state of original justice or rectitude. He describes how, you know, our minds and hearts would have been subordinated to God. Our passions would have been subordinated to our minds and hearts, and our bodies would have been subordinated to our souls. And in his Romans commentary, he adds that all of material creation would have been subordinated to us in turn. Like there's this sense in which like, um, yeah, these graces and integral nature, these associated privileges, they kind of resonate out into man's environment. And then like, what might that look like at the end time with the how much more of the grace of God, you know, having passed through the incarnate Lord. Yeah. So, yeah, but I don't want to ask a question about that. I want to ask a question about something else. Um, so specifically about this anxiety that you described mentioning the beginning of the book, Huckleberry Finn, that, um, that heaven will be boring. Um, yeah. So I think, I think some people might be just a little bit worried that they don't desire heaven more or that when they envision heaven, they envision themselves kind of whatever, like laid out on a philosopher's couch being fed, whatever, like fruits, uh, but like not enjoying it, just kind of whatever, repining and restlessness. Um, and I think in part that's because like some some of the descriptions of heaven tend to sound a little bit static. Can you highlight uh, some of the dynamic aspects insofar as one can speak of dynamism in heaven? Uh, you, you touched on this a little bit in your lecture, but maybe a word more about that. Yeah, and this becomes a little complicated because it's hard to think about, I'm not sure how to think about time in relation to heaven. Um, in one sense, nothing new happens. In some sense, you should think of it being endlessly new. One thing I like about, and you mentioned Reginald Gary Lagrange, the book Life Everlasting is a good sort of introduction to a classical understanding of eternal life. He talks about, perhaps we have to talk about the self as having different aspects, even if this isn't his term, layers. The beatific vision, in a certain sense, in our, in our spirit, in the highest sense, we'll, we are lifted out of time. There is something of a participation in the eternity of God, particularly in that aspect of ourselves, which is the most, what do you use the term, spiritual. But there's also going to be, inter I mean, I don't think there's just a set of relationships with other persons and things which are eternally unchanging without my attention shifting from one to the other. That I find hard to understand and it doesn't appear to be, say, say the, the, the sort of last two chapters of Isaiah, the last chapters of Revelation, where you get the fullest kind of pictures of eternal life. There you do have kind of shifting around. But now, again, often it's 
you go from a liturgy to a banquet to a liturgy to a banquet. <laughs> um, it's sort of an Easter vigil, sort of an endless sort of going back and forth between the Easter vigil service and the big banquet afterwards, followed by another liturgy. But can one talk then about the, the variety within a liturgy, the variety of, of a large banquet? One question, and this has been um, in both Catholic and Protestant theology in the 20th century, there was a lot of discussion of, of if we understand eternity in something like the famous definition of Boethius, where it's the full extent of a temporal sequence taken all at once. Can we understand that in some sense, to the degree that our lives have been in Christ, we receive them back in a certain sense, that whereas my past is now just in this life, it's just gone to me. Do I, to the degree that my past has been in Christ, do I receive that back? So that, you know, the one time I rightly hit that golf ball off the tee, <laughs> um, I think it was only once, but it felt great. I mean, in a certain sense, it's, it's that to the degree that that was in Christ, shall we say. It's a low point of my life in Christ, but maybe also still a part of it. Do I get that back in a certain sense? So that it's not just my body that rises, but history is taken up and included to the degree that history has been in Christ. I mean, this is sort of the point about the martyrs will still have their scars because they glorify God. That those that any aspect of my life, which has truly glorified God, is in a certain sense given back to me. You'll find this both in like. Guardini talks this way, Romano Guardini. You also have the Protestant world, Karl Barth. Was, um, I think, I mean, it's, that's then now we're getting quite speculative. But can we talk, can we think about the ways in which um, it's not just that we leave this world behind, no more than I leave my body behind, but that to the degree that all of history has been in Christ, it is taken up perfected in some sense, but now in this sort of Boethian eternity. But within that, some shift, some back and forth. There is a kind of, Paul Griffiths, a Catholic theologian who has interesting things to say uh, often, has two contrasting images of sort of activity in heaven. And, and this goes back to the debate that's gone on off and on, whether there's, whether, is there a kind of constant movement to God or is it static? And there has to be some activity. Griffiths thinks it needs to be circular. You know, it, it's, it, that it's like, it's like the Holy Sonnets of John Donne, where the last line of the last sonnet is the first line of the first. So you can recite it endlessly it can be, and just say that last line and it starts the next one. So this, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like reading the Psalms. Um, and if you were to read the Psalms, old-fashioned way where you read the whole thing every month, you start again. So it's a kind of cycle of a liturgical year. The variation doesn't move forward because you're at the end. But there is a kind of there is a kind of cycle. You can contrast that. This is an interesting question where you think this is a good image of heaven. The absolutely perfect baseball game. Where at the end of nine images, everybody's innings, everyone's played really well, but it's tied. And they're delighted to play another inning. And they play even better. Great plays. But it's still tied. And at the next inning, they're, you know, they've not grown tired. They're playing even better than before. 
and it's still tied. You can have an infinite baseball game. Uh, now, Griffiths, and I have sympathy with him, let's not have him, because you're still wanting to get better. You're not really at rest. This is a deep biblical image of heaven, is that it's rest. It's participating in God's Sabbath rest, so to speak. But I, I there is something attractive about the perfect baseball game, um, but also about, about the variety being like the cycle of the liturgy. Ever new, but also you have reached you have reached rest in a certain sense. Uh, you've reached quietus. So here, I think we have to think of images like the the endless liturgy or Paul Griffiths, who he doesn't. This, he thinks it's the wrong image, but it's an interesting image of the eternal baseball game. Um, yeah, two small comments on those images, and then a final question for you. The first comment being um, this idea of circular motion. Obviously, it's one that's very precious to the medievals when they're thinking about the heavenly bodies and how they can, you know, betray a certain dynamism without being in any way corrupted. Uh, and this proposal, you know, of, of, yeah, locomotion being a kind of highest form of motion, which itself doesn't suffer many the the vagaries of motion. And then with respect to the, the baseball game, it's fascinating, too, because having had the conversation in terms of competition, um, baseball is one of these strange sports, which is basically non-dialectical. You know, you have the central dialectic of pitcher versus batter, but then the unfolding of all subsequent events is kind of strange. Because <laughs> in most sports, you have two teams pitted on either side of a field, basically trying to kill each other so that they can attain to a goal, uh, which is jealously guarded by the members of the remaining opposing force. But in baseball, it's like, yeah, it's it's almost like you're playing two separate games, which are, they're related at a point, yeah. you know, there's... There's, there's a point at which they come together, you know, like the base, the tag, the thing like that. But I'm trying to hit this far and run. You're trying to gather the ball and get it to your man right, who's most right. proximate to me. But <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> so it does take some of the competitive edge. Okay. Well, then how about as a, as a final question, kind of like a pastoral question? I think part of part of the anxiety uh, of people when thinking about heaven is that they might be bored, and we've described this, but I think part of our fear of future boredom is informed by our experience of present boredom. We find it hard to wait too long at stoplights. We find traffic utterly insufferable, you know, like if we are forced to endure three minutes of extra time in the, um, you know, like the line at the, the food store, you know, whatever it is, like we just don't endure boredom well. And now we all have recourse to our cell phones to take the edge off those experiences. So like maybe, maybe just a word of how do we acclimate to the atmosphere of heaven, to the contemplative gaze, which will satisfy and never grow weary, of which will never grow weary by a kind of struggle with our, with our present boredom. For me, it's, it, there are things in which one takes deep delight. Um, to some degree, they're intellectual. To some degree, they're music. I mean, I really classic. I mean, Bruckner, a Bruckner symphony. Now, for my wife, a Bruckner symphony is close to hell, I think. But for me, I mean, a, the long, slow <laughs> movements of Bruckner, there are times when you do feel lifted out of yourself. Um, and that a Bruckner slow movement can be quite slow, but it's not boring. I mean, it's 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 sort of endlessly fascinating. Um, I think particularly to think of those moments when the, you do feel you you have a sense of of being in one sense lifted out of yourself, but also in another sense perfectly at home with yourself. 
I mean, in the sense of you're not worried about yourself. You're not worried about how you're doing. You, it was like that one time I hit the golf ball, right, so to speak, off the tee, and you saw that ball and it cuts into the air a little bit, and you're sort of at home. I was at home with my swing once in my entire life um, in my years of playing golf. And to think about those moments of, of both being lifted out of yourself and perfectly one with yourself, which is presumably what heaven will be. We'll be lifted out of ourselves. There'll be, I mean, the vision of God will be in some sense all-consuming, but also perfecting. There'll be no more internal struggle. There'll be no sense of my deficits. Uh, my individuality will no longer be a deficit. It'll be having been perfected in unity with God. So when you think about those aspects of yourself, of your experience, which are both lifting out of yourself and moments of, of peace with yourself at once. Um, those might be the places you have the foretastes. There are foretastes of heaven. It's important to think of those. Um, they're going to be different for different people. Those are the ones I would, I think, particularly are meaningful for me. Wonderful. Yeah, no, that's... That's helpful for me to focus on my own experience and to uh, highlight those things or maybe cherish those things which are meaningful for me or which speak speak volumes of the life that lies in store, provided only we consent to and cooperate with God's offer yeah, right. himself. Which uh, is no, no, <laughs> no trifling task. Um, good. Well, th thanks so much for taking the time. And, oh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks. Sir. Turning then to you, the listener, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Off Campus Conversations. Uh, yeah, we look forward to chatting with you again in another couple of weeks. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast. 